And it is Jesus who makes this a glorious day. We welcome you to this morning's broadcast. We thank you so much for joining us. Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29 will be our passage today. These verses teach us that religion and salvation are not the same. Back in New Testament times, the Jews had specific privileges and they hated Gentiles. This was a problem. And now, with his message for this morning, please welcome our very own Pastor Robert Elliott. Let's pray. Lord, how rich victors we are in Christ, for we are saved, and we love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And Lord, we would ask that as we look at these verses in Romans 2 tonight, that we would be mindful of people perhaps in our houses that are not yet saved, people perhaps in our families that are not yet saved, people at our workplaces who are not yet saved, people in our uh, island, on our island, and on the family islands that are not yet saved. Lord, you've delivered us from the hollow forms of religion to have a relationship with you. May we uh, bask, worship, and thank you in this relationship this evening. Hide me, Lord and magnify yourself by the workings of the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name together. Amen. Religion and salvation are two different things. The religious man thinks that he has something to offer God for salvation. The saved man thinks he has nothing to offer God for his salvation. Religion is about what the person does for God. Salvation is about what God does for the person. Religion depends on behaving. Salvation depends on believing. Religion sees the sufficiency being in character. Salvation sees the sufficiency being in Christ. Oh yes, religion and salvation are vastly different. And tonight as we come to Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 29, we're going to see the Holy Spirit through Paul argue that Jews without Jesus stand condemned. Jews without Jesus stand condemned. The reason Jews are cited in these verses is because the original readership largely was Jewish. And they needed to understand that religion did not equal salvation. And their countrymen, who were ba banking on religion and covenants and ritual and the, and the like, were not yet bound for heaven. Because a birth certificate doesn't make a person bound for heaven. A rebirth certificate makes a person bound for heaven. And so if you'll turn your attention to Romans 2, verse 17, I want to read the end, to the end of the chapter with you this evening. Romans 2, verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, 
having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth, you, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you, who though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. In verses 17 and 18, the first two verses of the passage I've just read, I see our first point tonight, namely the privileges of the Jews. The privileges of the Jews, and they are and were many. The privileges of the Jews. Here are five that I see in verses 17 and 18. As you let your eye drift down on those two verses, 17 and 18, please see five privileges of the Jew. Number one, reliance on the law. I see that in verse 17a. Privilege. Number two, boast in relationship to God. The second half of verse 17, privilege. Knowledge of God's will. I see that in the first part of verse 18, privilege. Approval of the excellent. The second half of verse 18, privilege. And instruction in the law. The third part of verse 18, privilege. And will you please notice with me that there are several present tense verbs in verses 17 and 18 and 19. Rely is a present tense verb in 17. Boast, present tense, verse 17. Know, present tense, verse 18. Approve, verse 18, present tense. Instructed, present tense, verse 18. And confident, verse 19, present tense. In all cases, these are present tenses of the habitual. They're describing present tense action, which is in fact a habit. You might say it this way. The Elliots take their garbage out to the curb on Monday nights. That is a habit. We do that every Monday night. Habitually. The religious Jews back then, when this letter was written to the Christians in Rome, the religious Jews back then habitually relied on the Mosaic law, and they habitually boasted that they were close to God, and they habitually claimed to know God's will in matters, and they habitually approved the law and deemed it to be essential, and they habitually 
instructed in the details of the law, and they were habitually confident that they served as guides to the spiritually blind Gentiles. But there was a fly in the ointment. There was a hiccup in the engine. These Jews of privilege hated, despised Gentiles. They hated them. These were privileges they had, but they didn't live up to the responsibilities that were attendant to those privileges for them as Jews. They lacked a genuine faith in the God who gave them the law, and they settled and were content to be religious. Of course, there are religious people all around us today, and they're not all Jewish. There are religious people all around you today, and some of them could actually come to a service like this evening's in a Christian church. Religious people. Thanks, Pastor Rob, for your message today. And now it's time for Youth Talk with Pastor Nicholas Rogers. Good morning. This is Pastor Nicholas, another edition of Youth Talk. And today we want to continue on our series, Family Feud. And, you know, as I think of Family Feud, and I think of, you know, again, as we've talked about, we talked about how we are imperfect people. We talked about how God has been patient with us and how we need to be patient with one another. Today we want to talk about how we need to forgive people. Forgive your family like God forgives you. You know, again, as we think of Family Feud, you know, we have to be honest that all of us families have different times of feud. Again, all families are different, but they always have one thing in common, that they're made from imperfect people. And we talked about last week how the family can frustrate, annoy, and maybe even hurt us. And we have that same opportunity to show patience that how God showed us patience when we messed up. You see, I think that too many times as we consider our lives and we consider what we're going through, we so many times think that, you know, that this, this, this only happened in our family. But the difference is I think a lot of times as we consider and we looked at it and we talked a little bit about it in the last couple of sessions is when we consider the different makeups of families is that some families fight for their family. Um, parents fight and, and um, children fight. Um, you know, again, there's no perfect family. It would be easy to give up sometimes. But that's not what God would want us to do because as we consider God's word, we consider how he himself didn't give up on us, even though we mess up so many times. And just think of us ourselves as we think of our lives. We've messed up so many times. You know, so I want to ask you this morning as we consider this, um, you know, consider a family member like, who do you need to forgive? You know, who, who, do you, what, who in your family do you need to forgive? As we know, we have so many families where people aren't talking. And, you know, even in these homes of, you know, parents aren't talking, kids aren't talking to each other. And, and the list goes on. And again, like we said, this is from the beginning of time. Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve. So this is not a surprise. God knew. And, and again, as we talked about, the attack on the family is real, especially in today's culture. Um, again, as we see it. But when we look at forgiveness, we need to look at, first of all, what is the cost of unforgiveness? Again, we all know it's difficult to forgive. The bigger the offense, the more difficult it is to forgive. But what if I told you there was something even more difficult than forgiveness? When we have wronged, the only thing more difficult than forgiveness is unforgiveness. 
when we refuse to forgive the person who has hurt us, we actually give that person power over us, power that prevents us from finding healing in that relationship. When we refuse to forgive, we become bitter, resentful, and trusting. Our unforgiveness causes us something. Again, as we think of unforgiveness and when we don't forgive people, again, it just eats you alive. It eats you up where you can't stand to be around that person. It's hard. And the bitterness just comes in and it just attacks you and it eats you up. And I think too many times in our lives, this is what we see. We see people get so bitter and angry that they allow whatever is going on to control them, to consume them, that they don't even want to see or hear anything else. And that's why, as we think of it's hard to forgive, unforgiveness is even harder because it just eats us up. You see, when we live in unforgiveness toward our family members, we cause damage to relationships we can never replace because we can never replace our families. You know, there's a, a the thing that people always say that, you know, you can pick and choose your friends, but you can't pick and choose your family. Your family is who your family is, and you need to recognize that God has given you that family for a reason. But there's another way our unforgiveness costs others something. When we refuse to forgive, we rob the world of what we could be, an incredible demonstration of love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And that, ta- that, that talks to us as we think about this morning, we talk about how now God calls us to forgive. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, it says, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also to forgive. Again, as we think of of this and we think of how the Christian life is, we see, first of all, Paul is talking about putting on these things, holy, um, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You know, we talked about being patient with one another last week. We said bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Forgiveness. Forgive one another because God has called us to forgive. It says it very clearly. Forgive one another as God, the Jesus himself, has forgiven you. Think about it. What if Jesus said that you messed up so, so bad that I'm not going to forgive you? I think if we were all honest, we would realize that, you know what? We're all guilty of that. We've messed up so much in life that, that too many times in our lives that we have, you know, if God said... I give you too much chances, you know, forget about it. Forget about this person. We would all be in trouble. You know, and then we sometimes think to ourselves, well, I've forgiven this person so many times. Again, we know as Jesus was talking to disciples, he talked about forgiving. He talked about 70 times, 70. And he's not talking about 490 times. But he's talking about forgiving people because, let's be honest, we all mess up. We all have a problem. We all think we know what's best. But the issue comes when we consider our lives and we consider what we are, you know, struggle with and we consider uh, uh, of how hard it is to forgive someone. But when we don't forgive someone and we have unforgiveness, it's going to eat you up. It's going to hurt you even more because it's going to put a stress in our relationship. It's going to hurt you to even think about what's going on and to think about life and to think about how to deal with life. You know, I know there's many people who don't want to deal with problems. They don't want to deal with with stress and situations and, you know, conflict. I know people who turn to to medication, 
um, to think that this is the way they're going to get rid of the problem so they don't have to think about it this time. But medication isn't going to help at that point. You can't just take a pill and say, I'm going to go to bed, and, but the, when you wake up, the, the problem is still going to be there. The individuals are going to still be there. So I ask you, what is it that somebody's done to you that you're not willing to forgive? What if Jesus said to you that I'm not going to forgive you for what you have done? We would all be in problems. We would all be in trouble because we are, again, as we think of, as we started this series, we are imperfect people and we need the forgiveness of Jesus. And we also need to forgive others in our lives. And we're going to pick up on this as we can continue and we talk about forgiveness and how we need to forgive one another. We're going to continue to talk about how God's forgiveness keeps forgiving. You know, God doesn't just say, I'm going to forgive you. Um, I sent my son to die and I'm going to, you know, for these sins right now. But they are forgiven your sins, past, present and future. He's paid the price. So why not think about your life? So why not think about what you um, need to do to forgive that person that you're holding a grudge to. At this time, I also want to remind you of our Vacation Bible School happening on June 24th to 28th. Um, you can call the church office at 326-0800 if you'd like more information. This is Pastor Nicklin, with another edition of You Talk. And now, today's ministry spotlight. Well, good morning, friend. It's good to have Patrick Rutherford with us in the studio. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Fine, thank you. Hey. Patrick's with Precept Ministries, Regional Director for the Caribbean. We are going to talk a little bit about Christian education this morning. First question, how do the following educational forces best work together in the education of a Christian child? Three forces, school, church, and home. <laughs> oh, that's a loaded question, Pastor uh, Rob. Yeah. I think the foundation is God's Word. Um, uh, that's my pet answer. God's Word has to be foundational in the school, uh, in the home, and in the church. I think it starts in the home, Pastor Rob. Yes. With mom and dad being deliberate. Um, I don't want to get legalistic and say every day at 5 a.m. the whole family has to be up at the breakfast table. But if that's what it takes, then go for it. But starting the day in God's Word, uh, my son and I, whom I have the pleasure of dropping to school on most mornings when I'm in town, uh, uh, he'll take the little testament, the little pocket testament out of the glove compartment, and we've been reading through Proverbs, and we'll read two or three verses and we'll say, well, what on earth is this going to do for us today? How do we get through this? I like that. And so it starts at the home, but I can't tell you how many times he's come home from school and say, Daddy, you remember that verse we read this morning? Here's how it showed itself up today at school. Is that right? See? Fantastic. And so, um, again, so you get that, that, those three tiers, those three levels of home and school. Or sometimes he'll come home and say, Daddy, guess, guess what? Guess what? Guess what I learned at school today? And guess what my teacher said when we were studying Bible or science or whatever? And he says, Daddy, this is what we were talking about. And, 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 and or, or he'd say, uh, or one of them would say, or one of the girls would say, this is what we talked about last week in Sunday school. And so they're, they're, the point I'm making is they should all be, there should be an intertwining. Um, uh, you, you shouldn't shortchange or take out one. In other words, you can't just have school and church or school and home or church and home. I, I think they're all interrelated. 
I think that's a great answer, a great perspective. Yes. The only thing I might add to it is that let's be practical. A child spends most hours at home, <laughs> second most hours at school, school, and the least amount of hours at church. Well said. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> All right. What are the typical characteristics of a Christian child who is well-rounded? They would be mannerly. Uh, when I say manly, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, no, sir, no, yes. ma'am. But yes. respect for authority. Yes. Uh, whether it's an older, older person or a younger, older person. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would um, be very helpful to all around them, uh, whether they like the person or not. Mm. Uh, a well-rounded child, when he makes a mistake or she makes a mistake, would fess up to their mistake. That's important. And take responsibility for their actions. Yes. Um, Pastor Rob, we homeschooled all of our children. And the day we knew they were ready was when they said, when they started taking responsibility for their actions. We knew they were ready for traditional school. Interesting. Um, that was the benchmark. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Maybe the simplest answer, everything you said was great, but yes. maybe the simplest answer of what are the typical characteristics of a Christian child who's well-rounded would be Christ-likeness. Absolutely. That, that's, the, that's the home run swing right there. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's something. Um, what happens when Christian parents back off from teaching their own children to be Jesus followers? in favor of letting the school or the church do it for them. Oh, dear. May it never be, Pastor Rob. May it never be. May it never be. I think you mentioned earlier that um, the child spends most of their time at home, secondly, at school, thirdly, at church. Yes. If I leave my church to be responsible for teaching my child, then that's only an hour a week. By right. way of Sunday school. Right. That's a scary thought. Maybe another hour to want to clubs or kids clubs. Absolutely. I'll call choir or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, you can only expect trouble. And you can define that trouble in any way you want. But all you will reap is trouble because you've neglected your God-given responsibility to train up that child. Sow the wind and reap a whirlwind. Absolutely. And with the sins that a parent approves in moderation, the child usually approves in excess. Yes. So many subliminal messages we send our children, don't we? Absolutely. Often what we, not only what we do or say, it's what we don't do or say. Correct. Correct. Well, may we partner uh, with the Holy Spirit, with the Word of God, in home life and build upon it in school life if possible and build upon it on the church, the local assembly. Absolutely. Amen. 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 It's time for answers to your questions. We urge you to take a moment and get a pen and paper and take down the references used so that you can do your own study later on. We here at Echoes of Calvary are always excited to receive your letters of support and your questions, which we seek to answer right away and also here on the show. You can send us your letters at eocradio at gmail.com. That's eocradio at gmail.com. 
Today, Pastor Elliot draws from Carl Laney's excellent book, Answers to Tough Questions. This book was published back in 1997. And once again, here is Pastor Robert Elliot. 1 Corinthians 11.5 raises the question, Did Paul teach that women should wear head coverings when they pray? According to Jewish custom, a bride went bareheaded until her marriage as a symbol of her freedom. When she married, she wore a veil as a sign that she was under the authority of her husband. It is quite probable that both Jewish women and respectable Greek women of the first century wore such head coverings in public. But there were women at Corinth who were not wearing the traditional head covering. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 5 and 6. Paul responds by explaining the need for the woman's head to be covered when she participates in public ministry of praying or prophesying. See verse 5. Building his case on certain facts from creation, verses 7 through 9, the presence of angels, verse 10, and the pattern in nature, verses 14 to 15, Paul concludes that the woman ought according to verse 10, to cover her head in situations of ministry where role relationships appear to be confused or reversed. Paul concludes by affirming that this practice is universal among the churches of God. See verse 16. Paul clearly supports the practice of women covering their heads when participating in public ministry of praying or prophesying. The question most people have is whether or not this first century custom is binding on believers today. While the answer to this question is debated, it is significant that Paul argues his case not from culture, but from theological and biblical truths. Whatever you conclude regarding this debated subject, it is important to remember that God gives priority to the attitude of the heart over external ritual. It is possible for a woman to wear a head covering while not having an attitude of submission. This would violate the spirit of Paul's teaching while keeping it to the letter. You've been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church, Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship services are at 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. in our sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We encourage you to join us. Feel free to write us at eocradio at gmail.com. That's eocradio at gmail.com or P.O. Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And remember, everyone needs a savior.